Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Hi, I'm Matt Blumberg, uh, co-founder and CEO of Bolster. Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Uh, today we are going in deep with Rand Fishkin. Uh, Rand is the uh, co-founder and CEO of Spark Toro, and I had the privilege of being on the board of Rand's last company, Moz, for four or five years. So got to know him uh, fairly well uh, back in the Moz days. Uh, Rand, welcome to the Daily Bolster. Yeah, Matt, lovely to be here. Um, tell everyone what you're doing at Spark Toro. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting for a huge chunk of our audience. Sure. Uh, so let's see. There's there's probably two things that I suspect are of interest to Spartoro. I'll start with what the product actually is, what the, what the company does, which is audience research. So for example, uh, if you are a marketer and you wanna know which YouTube channels you should advertise on or, or pitch for you know whatever, uh, a guest spot in order to reach chemical engineers in Los Angeles, Spartoro can tell you that. If you want to know um, what people who play board games and are obsessed with the board game community. If you want to know uh, what publications they read so that you can sponsor their email newsletters, SparkToro can tell you that. And if you're trying to just build a great persona to reach CTOs in Canada, SparkToro can tell you that too. Basically, any describable online group, you can search for them in SparkToro. And then we go out and crawl about um, 12 different social networks, the public public profiles on those networks, plus websites and podcasts and all that. We aggregate that up and provide it back to folks um, starting at about 60 bucks a month. So it's, uh, we are, we, we try to serve mostly SMBs and agencies as opposed to big yeah. folks. You know, if you're whatever, um, P&G, you've got a huge team that can do this work. You don't need SparkToro, but you could probably, probably do it better than they can. So, I mean, <laughs> Sometimes, yeah, sometimes. With sometimes I'll see a persona from a very big Fortune 500 and I'll scratch my head and go, I don't think that's right at all. I, I almost feel like you could ask chat GPT and get a better answer. Um, but but um, the other interesting thing that SparkToro does is, uh, so Matt, we raised money in a very unique way. You know, when I left Moz, I, I did not, as, as you know, not, did not have much money and um, wanted to start another business. Uh, wasn't able to self-fund, but I, I like the bootstrap philosophy and I wanted to build that type of a business, sort of, you know, a company that had very high odds of lasting a long time and being profitable as opposed to the venture model, which is sort of like very high odds of dying quickly, but maybe returning, you know, 10x, 100x the, the fund. Uh, and because of that, we we went out and designed some documents with our attorney um, and with some folks in the investment community and we've open sourced those documents. So if you search for SparkToro funding, uh, three or four startups have already used our funding documents to raise money on their own. And um, a few um, startup accelerator programs, including TinySeed, which full disclosure, Geraldine and I are, are investors in TinySeed, but TinySeed uses SparkToro's structure, which is essentially put money in. Once the company makes enough, it pays the investors back, and then everybody participates in profit sharing pro rata for the life of the business. Interesting. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. And the um, uh, you you participate pro rata based on how much you put in, or does it have to do with how much you put in and when you put it in? Uh, 
I mean, for us, we simplified it. We basically raised one round only at one point in time where the valuation was, you know, X. And so whatever you put in, that's how much of the company, you know, you own the, the post money, just the same way venture would work. Right. The way you, I think the best way I've uh, explained it to folks is essentially that your stock portfolio, presumably, right, you might hold, hold some public stocks and some of those stocks, you know, whether you do it yourself, you have an investment professional, you describe as growth stocks. Like right. I don't expect whatever Google to ever pay me a dividend, but I, I hope that the stock price will go up a lot. Yep. And then you have your yield stocks. <laughs> and then you have your yield stock, right? 3M is going to pay you a dividend, you know, every quarter on the amount of shares that you own. And that's what we want to be at SparkToro. We want to be your dividend yield stock paying out year after year for the life of it. And look, if we ever sell, you're obviously going to make money again, right? So right. There's, there's sort of two opportunities, but we don't ever have to sell. We don't have to engage with M&A world. You know, we don't have to try and raise another round and show the metrics for it. Um, SparkToro grew only about 25% last year, which is actually great for us because Sounds our good. margins Sounds grew good even for most companies. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's so interesting. So um, I, wanna, I wanted to ask you a bunch of questions about Moz and sort of your experience and lessons learned. And I'm going to start with this one, which was, did you arrive at this um, through lessons learned from your last company? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the way I described it in um, in Lost and Founder, right, the, the book was that I, I think I had to raise venture at my first company because I felt like, I felt like if I didn't, I wasn't a real entrepreneur. I wasn't. It's very, it's very validating to have someone hand you $10 million. And, and it's very, I think that the, the tech ecosystem, I don't think it's a conspiracy theory, but I think there is a lot of pressure from a lot of people who culturally want entrepreneurs to believe that building a business that does a few million or a few tens of millions of dollars of revenue and gives them and their families and their employees and their customers a wonderful life is, that's the kiddie pool. Oh, you're so cute and adorable. Call me when you want to join the big kids, right? And and they need to use lifestyle business as a pejorative to encourage people like you and I to take their money and go their path, right? If they don't create that that culture of striving and and of growth, then you know the United States economy might be filled with small and medium businesses and happy people, and that would not make billionaires richer. Um, and we can quibble about the pros and cons. I, I think yeah. that there, I recognize there are some pros to general economic growth, but I think, I think it's hard to argue that it's better concentrated in a few hands than distributed across many. And the venture ecosystem, obviously, is a concentrating power, generally speaking. I think what's... So, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. So that, that sort of long... You know, I was at Moz 17 years, right? And and I think you were at Return Path 20? 20. Yeah, we did 20. Yeah. Um, so so similar kinds of journeys there. And um I had some wonderful experiences at Moz. Um, I met some lovely and wonderful people. Uh I think that for a time we had a positive impact on on the world of internet marketing and and SEO. Um, but overall I am uh, I am disappointed that I chose the path that I did. And I, I hope that um, 
by by doing this new company in this new way, hopefully we can uh, blaze a trail for more people to follow. Well, I admire the way you're doing it. I admire that you made it all open source. Um, I'm glad to hear others have um, downloaded and and taken you up on that. I think it's an it's an interesting path. And look, different businesses need different levels of capitalization depending on what they're trying to do, right? You can't you can't go start a life sciences company and do pharmaceutical research without an enormous bankroll. Um, but uh, as I always say, we we are I feel like we are living in the golden age of the startup. It has never been easier, cheaper, lighter way to start a business now. And, um, uh, you know, there's absolutely a place for venture capital, but there are also a lot of places where people overcapitalize and um, it, it's good to have alternatives out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think even if, I would say for a lot of entrepreneurs, even if you believe you're going to be the next, you know, whatever it is, Salesforce or MailChimp or whatever, you might want to consider starting in a way that is um, that requires less hyper growth uh, at less speed, mm-hmm. and give yourself the room to find your market and find your place and your footing and get to profitability. Many of the most outstanding, especially software as a service companies, Atlassian uh, is another great example, started with not raising venture, either bootstrapped or invested by friends and family or you know those kinds of things, and then. 10 years, 12 years, 15 years in, oh man, this thing's really taking off. Now maybe is the time to, to do the venture path. Right. Um, and I think that often is a better um, better move for founders, makes people happier, gives venture investors a better return too. Probably, yeah. yeah. Just requires more patience. And uh, I think there is a deficit of patience in the world today. <laughs> and tech startup world. <laughs> I mean, if you talk sure. about... Uh, the, the list of attributes that are seen as positive patience is low on the list. Low on the list. Um, so let's uh, talk a little bit more about Moz. Um, 17 years, um, some, obviously some things that went well and some things that didn't go well. One of the things that, um, that I think is, is unique to your experience, at least in the tech world that I wanted to start with is you started the business with your mother. Hmm. Um, and um, you know uh, it's just an interesting question of how did that, how did that come to be? Um, how did it work? How did it, how did it change? How, was it good for the company? Not good for the company? Was it good for your relationship? Did you call um, her mom at work? Or? Yeah, all very fair questions. And um, I have talked to a lot of entrepreneurs who have worked with family, um, you know, often brothers and sisters, sometimes, you know, a, um, I, I would say mother and son is kind of, is almost the most unusual combination. Uh, I know very, very few folks who've done that, but a lot of folks will come up and talk to me about it when I give speeches or whatever. And um, I think the, the universal truth seems to be, it's not easy. It, it creates a lot of challenges. Um, you know, the one the one that I've heard go well, the one that I've heard go the best is um, partner teams, right? So husband and wife or husband and husband or, you know, wife right. and wife like that. That relationship often seems to work. Not always, sure. There's plenty of problems, but I, think, I don't think the breakup rate is any worse than it is for the average co-founder pair. But um, in other family situations, I, I think it is much worse. Um, I've seen a few stats around this and and certainly my experience would would validate that. So the 
Um, reality is I, I dropped out of college in 2001 and started working with my mom, um, who was running a small business marketing consultancy, like helping people with logo and letterhead and business cards. And, you know, I would say it was a, um, my, my dad, you know, my parents have a, in some ways, a little bit messed up in traditional marriage. Um, and my dad didn't give my mom a whole lot of rope to run her own business, right? So she was kind of expected to do that in her spare time, along with a great deal of other things. Um, I will give him credit. He did the laundry. So at least there's that. Um, but the uh, reality was that the business that we started working on together, which was essentially website design, did poorly. You know, it, it went deeply into debt. We we had to hide the debt from my dad for a variety of reasons that I talk about in the book. But um, yeah, all sorts of messed up family dynamic stuff. And um, long story short, when when we raised money, when venture investors came knocking at our door, right? It was it was Michelle who said like, hey, this is super exciting. Would you ever want to kind of take this to the next level? Like this is taking off like a rocket. And I got very excited about that. Um, but the investor ignition was, was insistent that I become the CEO and that Jillian, my mom, stepped down. Um, you know, she joined the board of directors and was involved with the company until 2012 um, when Brad invested. And, and then they sort of did a deal where they bought her out of the business. Uh, it was not great for our relationship. Um, it was not great for the business. I, I don't know. I have a lot of gratitude. I, I know my mom loved me and still loves me very much and wanted to support me. And um, I, I wish we would have kept our relationship personal and family. That would, I think that would have been better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's gotta be challenging even when it works well. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I've heard stories of it working well and even then it was tough. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about the journey at Moz. Um, you started building websites. You ended up with an amazing uh, data and crawling asset around search. Yeah. Um, did you did you take the advice that you gave at the beginning of this talk of starting small, methodical, talking to customers, winding your way until you got to something uh, that was a, a, a big thing? Uh, yes, but by accident. <laughs> so, I mean, I think that, you know, the thing about Moz, especially in the early days, it's, it's very hard to look at it and say, gosh, you know, Rand and the team made a lot of good decisions. I think we accidentally, we made a few good ones, enough good ones to keep us alive and sort of get us to an interesting place. And also timing and riding the wave of search growing, especially at a time when no one really, really no one, Matt, believed in SEO as a business or even as a marketing tactic, right? But I think it's it's difficult to remember the way the the world thought about SEO in 2005, six, seven, eight, but it was, that's spam, it's manipulation, it's never going to last, Google's going to crush it real soon, like it, it shouldn't be a thing and it won't exist soon, it'll go away. Now, of course, you know, every company in the world has an SEO team and clients and agencies. I think there's there's more than 4 million people who work in the SEO industry. Um, it's four a million? massive, massive field. Yeah. 4 million people work in SEO. 
Yeah. Um, and wow. most of them are now subscribers to Moz's competitors. So yeah, I mean, interestingly enough, like I, 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 you probably remember the board meeting, right? Where we were constantly fighting, like always just this knockdown, knockdown drag out fights about was the SEO field big enough, right? Could it produce even a single public company that was doing $100 million in revenue. Um, obviously, now, now it has a few companies, uh, more than a few that are doing that. And, um, you know, and Moz sort of, I think by virtue of really the fact that, that I, um, I think I surrounded myself, surrounded Moz and the team with a lot of skeptics, SEO skeptics, people who didn't really believe that the field was going to be big enough and that we had to broaden beyond SEO in order to, you know, build a company that would return um, the, the right kinds of money and multiples to its investors. Uh, yeah, very disappointing. But I mean, it's nice to see history validate you, but you almost wish it had gone the other way, right? At least for your own personal financial benefit, you wish it had gone the other way. Strange, right. strange feeling. How did you end up surrounding yourself with skeptics. Um, and is some of that good, but you had too much of it? Probably, yeah, probably it is good. Uh, ooh, ooh, okay, here's what I think is the key. You want people who have very little power distance, right? So they don't, you know, I think one of the wonderful things about you and I, for example, is that we, um, share a lot of core beliefs around what's important in the world. And, you know, we're both deep believers in, in kindness and in treating people well and in recognizing the value of teams and not exploiting people. And, you know, sort of um, we might be, yeah, we might have some differences on like sort of chill work versus hustle, but by and large, lots of, lots of shared values on that front. And then um, Hopefully, you know, if we were to start a company together, we would both want to share a belief about what is the future of this field? What's the thing that we're going to be great at? What's the problem that we're solving? Why are we solving it? Why are we passionate about it? And then we can have lots of disagreements about the how. Mm -hmm. But if you, if you fundamentally disagree on, is this the right field? Are we in the right market? Are we serving the right kinds of customers? Is, are we building the right kind of product? Those types of disagreements, I think, are for people before they agree to do a company together or sit on a board of directors. Um, I, I think that kind of, you know, a, we, it's, a, it's a really good point. Like you want people around you to challenge your assumptions yes, and to sharpen absolutely. you. But and you show you new them. data exactly. and that you haven't you don't, seen you don't want them, yeah, You don't want them to not believe in the thing you're doing. Right, Exa exactly that, right? If you, you know, I, I think it'd been really tough if, um, What's the name? You know, uh, Reed Hoffman had surrounded himself with people from the video rental industry, you know, oh, in the Reed, late nineties. Reed Hastings. Re sorry, Reed Hastings. Reed Hastings. Yeah. Right. Had sur surrounding himself with with you know people from yeah. the the um, video rental industry. They would have been like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Keep sending the DVDs in the mail. That's that's the thing to that's do. Thing. Yeah. What's this whole cloud? I don't, I don't believe in it. You don't you don't want to have to have those right. Yeah. Those types of fights. In fact, those types of fights almost broke Netflix. Uh, you can read about, you know, the, the the stories. I think their their chief people officer wrote a great book about what that fight was like, and yeah. 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 Uh, so as you kind of reflect back on Moz, um, what are a couple of other kind of big lessons that you take away? 
Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm sure I think... 17 years and there are a lot of them, but um, whether it's about how to scale a business, sure. uh, how to scale you know, yourself as a leader. So I, I am a huge believer that certain people, almost everyone um, gets energy from certain kinds of activities and has their energy sucked away by others. For yes. me, um, one of the things that sucks my energy away and that brings me no joy or, or fulfillment at all, it's, it's just a, you know, a problem that weighs on my conscience, um, is people problems. People problems and politics problems. And one of the weird things that modern entrepreneurship allows you to do is to work around the problems that suck energy away from you through, there's, there's sort of like two ways to do it. One is you have someone else in your organization deal with that thing. So you never have to deal with it, right? You, you insource it or you outsource it. Right. Or you build a business that doesn't require any strength with that thing, right? You, you optimize for, hey, we're never going to need to uh, be good at sales. SparkToro will never have to be good at sales. We have a landing page. People come to it every day and, you know, five to 20 people sign up for the paid version and a few hundred people sign up for the free version. It's great. It runs on its own. We have almost no support. I, I like doing support. It's fine. But there's only three of us at SparkToro because I hate people problems and I hate politics. And both Casey and I, when we started this company, you know, we sat down at coffee shops and had lots of conversations and basically said like, you know, Casey said, I never want to work at a company with more than 10 people. And I was like, well, I could see my way to 25. But that was, that was core agreement on the thing right. that, you know, that we were going to build and what we were going to optimize for. And as a result, there's lots of things that we could do with more people, a sales team, for example, that we will never do. It's just, it's not in our DNA. It doesn't matter how... But you could have this much money if you had a sales team. I don't want that much money. That's not what I want. I mean, I don't mind making more money. I think that's fine. I'm happy to you know, have our investors get more money and us do better and serve customers, all those kinds of things. But I am not willing to do it at the cost of these. And everyone has their these things. So the, the big thing that I would say I learned, massive thing that I learned from us is that you can know yourself not just your strengths and weaknesses, but the things that give you energy and suck them away and, and the things that you are willing to sacrifice to get more money and the things that you are not willing to sacrifice to get more money. And I hope the former list is um, small and the latter list is huge um, because I think that's what makes for good people. But whatever it is, like you go, you go figure those things out and you find co-founders who share that with you and you go on your mission uh, and then you... By virtue of that, what's beautiful is because everyone is different, every entrepreneur is different, every human being is different, we all get a slice of the market, right? right. Uh, there's, it's lot, there's lots of people who will never buy SparkToro because they need dedicated sales and support and they, you know, they want a manager for their account and they, you know, they want someone to like help them structure all their queries and that kind of stuff. And we're not for them. Right. And that's wonderful because it leaves room for someone who is. And the same thing's true in the reverse. So uh, I, love the, I love the premise that uh, it all starts with understanding yourself. And uh, you know, I'm a huge believer in, um, in self-awareness as being like the root of everything good. 
uh, that you can that you can do in, in life and with other humans and in companies. Um, and actually it reminds me of, of a, a blog post you wrote years ago that's one of my, I think, all-time favorite founder blog posts. Huh. Um, and I think that the headline or the, the title was something like the narratives we tell ourselves. Hmm. I don't know if that rings a bell. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was just a, it was so insightful about how, how important it is to understand yourself, but also how important it is to call yourself out on your own bullshit. Um, and founders, and I, I'm certainly like this as well. I think I'm like this, the older I get, the more I'm, I'm kind of in my own head sometimes. Um, and that's a tough way to lead a large organization sometimes. So I, I don't know if you remember that particular post yeah. or pattern that produced it, but if I remember, yeah, if I remember, I, I, I got some, uh, feedback, especially from, um, our, our other, one of our other board members, Brad, uh, about that post in particular with, um, he had different views of the narrative, yeah. <laughs> obviously, which is which is fine, right? I think that different people who experience even the same thing can come away with a different story that they tell themselves about it. And uh, I have, yeah, tried to have sort of empathy to see other people's perspectives while not not sacrificing my own, right? Saying like, hey, this this is my story. This is my version of this story. This is what I think I learned from it. I think it's okay for other people to have different interpretations. Um, and I also think it's okay for me to be clear on what I think I picked up from that. Yeah, for sure. And look, it's got to cut both ways. Um, you know, if I think even the, the bits and pieces of things I know about you, right, your uh, value system carried into Moz as tag fee. Right, your great acronym for for your values, which I can probably even remember what all of them were, and I never even worked there. Transparent, authentic, generous, flexible, fun, fun, uh, empathetic, and all right. I didn't that not the exception, and ex the exception. So, um, so that's an example of you know founder driven. You know who you are. You know it's important to you. You're going to drive that through the company. Yeah. The other side of that is, you know, one of your, I think one of the chapter headings in your book, Lost and Founder, um, is um, startups carry their founder's baggage. So um, maybe as kind of our last topic, like dig into that for a second, like what's the good and what's the bad of the kind of founder-driven startup? Uh, so I, I often think of, you know, there's a common reply on sort of whatever, an Instagram or Reddit or, or TikTok or uh, YouTube. And that is, you know, someone expresses a strong viewpoint about a thing and a comment says, who hurt you? <laughs> right? And and in a lot of cases, when you, when you I think, look at, uh, when you look at Moz and the way that it was um, and tag fee, you could apply that sort of, you know, who hurt you or, or more broadly, what happened to you to make you this way? What are you reacting to or responding to? What are you embracing and rejecting? Um, and those, knowing the answer to those things and knowing that you're doing them and why you're doing them, right? Why was Rand so transparent? Why did I have to share everything, even things that, you know, the board really wishes I didn't share? Um, I, I, I don't know, Matt, if you were part of it, but the um, there was a two-year 
almost hundred thousand dollar legal fight over releasing Lost and Founder, the book. That was, right? that was, I think that was after I left the board. Okay, yeah. You were writing it when I was on the board, and then that happened after. Yeah, I, I'm very glad that. <laughs> very glad you missed that part. I don't. I don't think that part of the adventure was great for anybody. Um, you know, I think that the the new CEO and and the the board members were very worried about what I was going to put in the book, and they thought it was going to be, I don't know, excoriating and um, untrue or those sorts of things. And you know, of course, when it comes out, they're like, oh, well, this is quite mild. This is you kind of make us look nice and you make yourself look like the bad guy. That's great. That's fine. Right. <laughs> um, I think that the, you know, re reality here is that there's a set of experiences that we all go through. And so sometimes you have to go through them yourself to pick up the lessons from them. But I think, a huge part of my goal, even in being transparent, you know, nowadays with, with SparkToro and what's going on there is you might be able to avoid some of the mistakes that I made. And, and I hope that I'm avoiding some of the mistakes that my predecessors made, right? And that, that hopefully over time, we can all stand on each other's shoulders and build something better and, and more wonderful than what came before. Um, I think that's the, you know, there, I, I have, so many complaints about modern capitalism, right? I think it's just deeply problematic in all sorts of ways. But my favorite thing, my absolute favorite thing is the freedom to put your labor where you want, in the way that you want, right? So, you know, if I'm working, I was working at a retail clothing store and then my mom's clients started needing web design. So at night I was learning to make websites and, you know, while I was sort of half paying for school and also working at the Wizards of the Coast Games Center, you know, selling magic cards and Pokemon and whatever. And and I could do all these different things and then decide to get into web design. And then when that was failing, learn how to do SEO and put my labor there. And that freedom and flexibility um, for those of us who have the privilege and opportunities is, is a really beautiful thing. But in addition to where you put your labor, it's how you put it. Like you... <laughs> I think entrepreneurs often feel like they're this is the way to start a company, but there is no this way. You can you can do it however you want, baby. The world is yours. That is certainly true. There there are uh, lots of different types of entrepreneurs out there with lots of different approaches, and they've all been successful and they've all failed. Yeah, and you don't have to listen to the judgment or the pressure of a particular ecosystem. And you can surround yourself with people who like you and what you're building for what it is. Um, so, you know, so much of my Ma's journey was, was about trying to fit in, wanting to fit in, wanting to, I mean, a huge part of this, is so embarrassing, Matt, but like a huge part of me was, I, I want to, you know, speak on stage at TechCrunch and have all the other entrepreneurs look up to me why? Why did I want that? I don't know what it is about being a dude in your 20s. Is it like the testosterone and the you know, feeling of not being good enough? Is it the Jewish thing? I don't know. <laughs> it's just, yep. Well, human beings, to overcome are, human beings are complex, uh, complex and evolving animals. They are. Right. They are. Let me close with one last question for you. So um, one piece of advice. And I, you know, if you have two or three, that's okay. But one piece of advice for uh, founders 
and CEOs about scaling, whether it's scaling their company, scaling themselves as leaders, scaling their team, their board. One piece of advice for founders about scaling. Gosh. Um, all right. I, I think we've already talked a whole lot about do you need to scale? So let's assume that the answer to that question is, yes, I need to or want to scale. That's, that's part of my um, goal. I think the next logical thing is many, many folks have carry assumptions and beliefs about what scale means. Scale can mean a lot more customers. It could mean a lot more market penetration. It could mean a lot more revenue. Uh, it could mean a lot more dollars per existing customer. It could mean a much bigger team, uh, a wider array of products. And I would, I would invite you, I would ask you to sit in the uncomfortable creative zone of not giving an answer for a while before you choose which one of those or ones of those you need to scale. Do you absolutely need to hire lots more people to achieve the thing that you want to achieve? Is what you really want to achieve more revenue? Is it more revenue through more customers doing the same thing they're doing today? Is it more value per each customer and they're all paying you more? Are you going to get rid of most of your existing customers and move to you know up market to people who are going to pay you much more for the thing that you do? Are you going to build new product lines? I would just invite you to sit in that space and not block out any of the options and consider uh, the ones that you might have rejected or not assumed were part of scale before, because it it turns out, you know, weirdly, so SparkToro is a very strange company in a whole lot of ways. When I tell people these things, they're quite skeptical, but SparkToro is doing very nicely, growing. It's very profitable, has extremely nice, you know, margins at gross and net, uh, kicks off a lot of cash every month, which is, which is great. Um, and it, has three employees, myself, Casey, and Amanda. Uh, it is serving about 1,500 paying subscribers and over 100,000 free users. Um, it gets no search traffic at all. I know that's weird because I used to be like the SEO running. guy at Moz. We get no search traffic. Like literally, if you look at our Google search console, you'd be like, what's going on? It's just people searching for your brand name. You don't rank for anything. It's true. We rank for nothing. And I think weirdest of all, the thing that really surprises people is we optimize to try and work about 25 to 30 hours a week, sometimes less. Um, and we try and build a company that requires very little work from us. This is what I'm talking about when I say there are ways to scale. One of the other things that I think, do you need the speed? Do you have to reach the number that you said you were gonna reach next year? What if it took you two years or five? Would that be, could that still be okay? Are there ways you could make that okay? I, you know, if you have a billion and a half dollars of interest on your debt payment for the company that was only making 900 million, probably not okay. Um, unless yeah, there are other companies, yeah. <laughs> unless you own Tesla and SpaceX, in which case you can bleed for a long time. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would just, I would just invite folks to open their minds about what's possible because a lot of things that you think are impossible. I'm not that impressive an entrepreneur and I can do these things. I promise you can do these things too. One of the things I've always appreciated about you, Rand, is uh, you're willing to challenge orthodoxy. 
and sometimes orthodoxy needs to be challenged. Um, thank you for sharing your wisdom with our uh, audience and founders. Good to see you. I appreciate you being here. Likewise, Matt. Thanks for having me. Take care. This podcast is brought to you by Bolster, the new way to find the right executives. We supercharge startup growth by matching CEOs with transformational executives, mentors, and board members without the hassle of traditional talent sourcing. Start searching for free at bolster.com.